I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, my name is Ali Vignon, coach of the Flyers. Hey, I'm Travis Konechny. Hi, I'm Paul Holmgren. Hi, I'm Matt Niskanen. Hey, I'm Scott Lawton. Hi, I'm Joel Farabee. Hi, it's Derek Grant. Hi, this is Bob Clark. And you're listening to Snow the Goalie. 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 Oh, yes! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast, the People's Podcast, the Players Podcast, Prognosticators Podcast, Peter Light Podcast, Pampers Podcast, the Primo Cast. And we're going to get into it. And listen, there's a lot to talk about, okay? This Keith Primo interview went, I, I think you and I both expected it to go well, Anthony. Mm-hmm. Anthony Sanfilippo, find him on Twitter, at AntSanPhilly. Also on Instagram, at AntSanPhilly. And of course, our show is available, facebook.com slash Goalie, Twitter at Snow the Goalie, Instagram, at Snow the Goalie, you know. Um, I think we both expected this interview to go well, but there are some real moments of absolute uh, gut-wrenching reaction uh, from Keith Primo when he gets into, and and I don't want to spoil it for anybody, there is a moment where you will hear a pause of about 10 or 15 seconds, which is him collecting himself. And that, that clip is going to be available. If you're here because you saw it on Twitter or on Facebook already, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen it, there is a moment where he kind of collects himself because there's a very important moment in his career uh, that, that made him very emotional to talk about, which was an excellent moment. Uh, there is an excellent moment, which I'm guessing a lot of people are coming over to the show to hear in its full context about a certain player uh, who suffers from migraines on this team. And what his thoughts as a person who suffered from migraines and concussions and um, undocumented concussions, where he stands as somebody who understands to some extent what Nolan Patrick is going through. And there's a lot of other really good stuff in this interview. But we would also be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the biggest stories surrounding this team uh, that have developed over the last week or so. We didn't have a show last week. There have been things that have, have come up and they're starting to gain more momentum specifically Patrick Laine. So we want to make sure that we, we touch on that. We want to do the primo part first. When you get to, to hear that, we'll react to that. And we've got the Laine stuff. And there's, there's more. Anthony? Yeah, and there's one teaser for the primo thing that you forgot to mention. Go ahead. Listen for his talk about what happened uh, in 2000 with the return of Eric Lindros. That, that was, was also pretty some good. Of, some of the hardest hitting stuff, and I did not expect for him to, uh, well, to go into it like he did. Yeah. So it's, it's really worth listening to in its entirety. And then, of course, we're going to be breaking down all the latest rumors, the news, some educated uh, information, we'll say, that's coming through Snow the Goalie. Uh, so without further ado, let's get to the interview with uh, Keith Primo. And then on the other side, we'll react and we've, we've got some Flyers news. Here is Keith Primo. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not uh, as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. 
Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Oh, yes, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, it is a glorious day to be a Philadelphia Flyers fan. Well, sort of. Stanley Cup has been awarded, but welcome in to Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast, the People's Podcast, the Players Podcast, the Prognosticators Podcast, the Presidential Podcast, the Pedialyte Podcast, the Pampers Podcast. Well, it's previously been the Pronger Cast, the Knubel Cast. We've had the Briere Cast. We've had the Sharp Cast. We had the Bobby Clark Cast, the Hextall Cast. But no, this one is probably the best. You could say it's the Primo Cast. <laughs> As we are joined today by Keith Primo. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a great day in the Delaware Valley. Thanks for joining the show. Wow, I, I love the uh, I love the intro. I, that's uh, that was a primo introduction. <laughs> yeah, very nice. It's the only thing I do. It's my only contribution to the show. I will sit back now for the next forty five minutes and have Anthony take you down memory lane. My job is done. Thank you. Uh, Thanks. Sit back and enjoy. (laughs) Thanks, Russ. I appreciate that. So, Keith, I I want to welcome you to the program as well. Uh, It's been a lot of fun for us. We didn't know what was going to happen, you know, with COVID uh, when the season stopped back in March and we started this. Like, hey, let's just play catch up with some old flyers. And it kind of took off. And, you know, it's been the best thing for the podcast since then. And we took a short break from that, obviously, when the playoffs happened. And now that that's over, we don't know when hockey's coming back, probably not until end of December, beginning of January. And we're going to keep it going and, and catch up with some, uh, some former players and, and, and uh, see what you guys are up to. Um, but I want to take you back. I want to start with you way back growing up in, in Ontario and in, in the Toronto area. Um, uh, can, tell me a little bit about like how you got into hockey and, and, and what, what was, you know, I know, I know your younger brother also played Wayne, um, but how did you guys like really, aside from being Canadian kids and every Canadian kid plays hockey. Right. Um, but aside from that, like what really kind of drove you to that? Yeah. So it was, uh, so, uh, back in the seventies, you know, it was a different time. And, and, um, I remember, you know, being, six seven years old and being allowed to go to the to the public school which was you know wasn't around the corner but it was you know it was was close enough but for a six or seven year old you know today he's not not close enough and um being allowed to stay out on the on the on the it wasn't a pond it was just the you know frozen you know they they built a outdoor rink um and stay out there till the till the street lights come on and then then get my skates off and walk home with my skates on my stick and and um and, and that, those are my earliest memories of uh of really um uh playing hockey and then and then um uh my mom is the one who's actually the avid hockey fan my dad was my dad played hockey and he, he was a, he was a hockey fan but my mom grew up in Timmins, Ontario, and she uh, she was a huge Mahovlich fan. She would go to the the local rink in Timmins, Ontario, with her girlfriend, and she watched Frank Mahovlich skate around the rink. Um, you, know, when, you know, when she was growing up, and so she was she was a, she was an avid hockey fan, and and so she registered me for hockey. And the day she registered me for hockey, they they needed some volunteer coach, or they needed some coaches, some volunteer coaches, and uh, she volunteered my dad. And, and my dad had two businesses at the time, and, and uh, there was there was two, four of us. I mean, I guess it would be four. Wayne would have been a newborn, um, and my 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 dad wasn't happy with my the fact that my mom had offered up my dad's services. You know, with, we had no more time in the in a day, um, 
but he took the he took the job and uh, he basically coached me from the time I started playing until the time I left home to play junior hockey at 15, except for one year, he went back and coached Wayne. And then when I left, he went back and coached Wayne until he left. Um, but uh, it, it, that started a passion for him um, when, when Wayne and I were just little and, and um, Hino had a huge influence uh, on, on our love of the game and, and certainly our development. Did you, um, did you have any other sports that you excelled at besides hockey? So excelled is a, is a, is an aggressive <laughs> word. <laughs> I played, uh, I, I also played box lacrosse. Okay. Um, growing up, uh, which I, I enjoyed, uh, played until I was about 13. I had to stop because, you know, mostly because of the pounding on my knees. Um, and you know, I had to make a choice at that point. Um, and I still say to this day that, you know, the three best lacrosse players I ever saw play were Joe Neuendijk, Adam Foote, and my brother Wayne. Wow. Yeah, they were, they were, uh, I mean, I saw a lot of great lacrosse players, you know, the Gates brothers were, you know, came through Whitby as, as well. And, and, um, uh, a lot of other guys, but but those guys uh, excelled at, at lacrosse. If there would have been a lacrosse league at that time, a major indoor lacrosse league, they could have played um, major indoor lacrosse. Um, so I played lacrosse. Uh, I didn't excel. I, I was I, I was good and I was okay. And then I also played uh, volleyball and rugby in in wow. high school um, before I left to play junior, which which were both both sports I actually really enjoyed. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, at what point did you kind of, did you kind of know that hockey was, was a path that you needed to take? So, so um, I, there was, I was in fourth grade and we had to write down what we wanted to be when we grew up, when we grew up. And I had put, uh, I had done my little, my little short story on uh, growing up and playing in the NHL and ultimately most, most likely for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And uh, I remember seeing my mom reading it at the back of the, uh, you know, on a uh, parent teacher's uh, night, reading it and calling my, bat, my dad back and kind of, kind of giggling and uh, at what I'd written. And, and it actually upset me because I thought, wow, that's, that's not, you know, she's laughing at me for what my aspirations are. Um, and it actually, it actually, you know, it, it motivated me to, uh, you know, that, that moment always stuck with me. But I think it wasn't until I started actually playing major junior that, I thought playing pro hockey was a reality up until that point. It was just, it was more like Saturday, Saturday, Saturday morning cartoons where I was watching hockey night in Canada and it wasn't real. Right. It was, you know, it was, uh, it was your, your heroes and your idols playing, uh, playing hockey night in Canada on the Saturday night in, in uh, Canada. And, and, uh, but once I started playing junior, I, I, I started to think that, Hey, this actually is an opportunity for me. And, and, um, and, and that was when I first, uh, really kind of focused on what the next step could be. Okay. And, and you started in Hamilton, but you, you, you made your bones in the OHL at Ni- in Niagara Falls. And you were part of uh, what is arguably the greatest draft class in the history of the NHL. That 1990 draft class was unbelievable. And, and the funny story is, is I think at one point uh, the Flyers had, I think, eight or, or nine guys who had were drafted in the first round of that draft who ended up on the roster, uh, which was pretty cool. Uh, but you went third overall. Um, how quickly did it elevate for you in junior hockey to, to know that you were going to be that high of a pick with that much talent that was out there that year? Yeah, so, so the advantage for me was, it was for, for both me and, and Mike Ricci, the two of us, we were both late births. 
we, and so we had we had the advantage of playing three years of major junior before we were draft eligible. Um, Mike had actually come out of he'd scored 50, 50 goals his first year in Peterborough. 50 is second. He may have 350. I don't know if his third year he'd had 50 because he played on the Canadian World Junior team. Um, but I, I, I had broke my collarbone my second year, uh, ended the season with 20 goals, had a great playoff. And, and if I would have been draft eligible that year, I probably would have been in the first round, maybe snuck into the you know, bottom half of the first round. Um, but this, the, my third year was where I, you know, I, I just blew the numbers you know, off the charts. Uh, I won the league scoring championship, uh, had a tremendous second half. Um, and at that point is kind of when I caught, a, you know, Mike Ricci, who was, like I said, was arguably the, the number one overall for two and a half years until, you know, myself and Owen Nolan and Peter Nedved um, kind of crashed the scene. And, and then there's this uh, um, uh, incognito guy in the Czech Republic named Yarmir Yager who, who, <laughs> who um, kind of flew under the radar for, uh, for the draft, but he actually hadn't, he didn't really fly under the radar. He was at that point, at that time, it was still the uncertainty of uh, Europeans coming out from behind the iron curtain and communist countries and, you know, them even getting over here to play. And, and so there wasn't, you know, Yarmir wasn't a sure thing, at least for, for a couple of years anyways. Um, and that's when it first started opening up because I, I played with Sergey Fedorov my first year in, in um, Detroit, and you know, and everybody remembers that he defected uh, right. in actuality, and and um, uh, things just started to loosen up, and and so. But you're right that that 1990 draft class, if you look down that list, and then I feel bad for the guy who was behind Yarmir, a guy by the name of Scotty Sissons, who was sixth overall, and I don't even know if he played six games yeah. in the NHL, <laughs> uh, and he was a nice, he was a super nice kid. Um, but man, he got sandwiched around a bunch of guys that, uh, played a lot of games in the national hockey league. Yeah. Yeah. And nine of, actually I just went through the list and counted. It was nine guys who ended up in that first round played for the, the Philadelphia Flyers. Now you mentioned the Detroit Red Wings and I want to talk about your time there, but the one thing I wanted to ask if you had an opportunity to see, um, and cause I wanted, cause as someone who lived it, um, a little bit, um, you know, I saw the, uh, the, uh, the original screening and then eventually went out into the movie theater, but I got to screen the Russian five. Um, I don't know if you had an opportunity to see that because I know, you know, a lot of the people that were involved. I know you weren't there for their cup years, but I wanted to kind of see what your impressions was of it because I thought it was a really well-made little documentary. It, it was, it was good. I did actually see it. Um, and I, I didn't go out of my way to, to see it, but actually it was on one night on ESPN, I think maybe or something late at night. And, and I turned it on and, and, uh, so I started to, I got captivated by it and, and, um, yeah, it brought, for me, it brought up a lot of memories because I was there for a big chunk of the start of the career for all of those guys. Right. Um, and, um, and so I, I lived it until, until I left. Right. Um, it, it, talk a little bit about your time in Detroit because it, it was like your breakout. I think, I mean, you had a couple of decent seasons, but I think your breakout was 93, 94, uh, which was the year before the lockout. Right. Um, and, and then uh, you were on the team that went to the finals in 95. that got swept by the devils. Um, and I, it was, I, I believe that the game kind of changed. That's when the NHL changed, like right around that time uh, from being a more wide open kind of game to being that, Devil system, to, right? The Devils, you know, yeah. the Devils were the ones that kind of you know created that clamp down, lockdown, defensive uh, structure, and we played a pretty good 
defensive system under Scotty at the time as well, we just had so many offensive horses that, um, right. you know, we, we, we could win games, you know, seven, six or, or, or two, one, if we needed to. And it was, you know, your goalie only had to be good. He didn't have to be great because we just, we, we just were so explosive. I, I remember the year, so 96 was the year we set the record for the most wins in, uh, it still stands 62 wins and it was it was it was late it was you know probably around game 60 65 and we had a home game against Vancouver and I don't I don't they might have been a playoff team I don't even remember and we have shot them bad like two to one three to one type of thing and I think maybe Kirk McLean was in that and they, they end up beating us three to two and they had no business beating us and they celebrated like they won the Stanley Cup and I, and I just remember that first part of my career the game as far as wins and success came really easy and I don't think I had a, a great enough appreciation for just how difficult and how hard the league was because we were that good we had some playoff um upsets um and and, and we you know we had to, we had to learn through you know through those uh through those losses um we lost in the finals in 95 to the devils uh, in a series that, uh, I mean, Dino Cicerelli my, was my re- roommate and he played with um, Neil Broughton in Minnesota and, and he was on the phone with Neil before and they, I think they psyched us out. They're like, oh, we don't, we don't have a chance. We, we you, know, you guys are going to, you guys are going to, you know, beat us four straight. And I think we all kind of got ahead of ourselves and, and, and thought the same thing um, only to have them, you know, kind of, you know, push it right back on us. Um, and then the next year, uh, it was probably the one that hurt more, actually, because uh, it was a record-setting year, 62 wins. Uh, we had St. Louis three games to one, Gretzky uh, on that team, and and Hull, and they played together, and they fought back and forced a game seven. And in a game in, in where in game five we had an opportunity to win early in overtime, we hit a post, and and um, and sh- so we should have never gone seven games. And only to play double double overtime. That's the Steve the Steve Eisen one shot from outside the blue line, mm-hmm. um, and um, uh, they they only to have to play Colorado two nights later, like not the next night, but the next night at home, and they've been sitting and rested, and we lost game one at home, um, and that that cost us the series. We end up losing in six games um, against a team that was very good, but. Uh, I don't think it was as good as we were. Um, and then after that year, you know, I, I made a, I made a decision that, you know, it was time for me to move on. Yeah. It's funny. I actually remember talk, I was, we had Hitch on the, uh, on the pod and I remember talking to him and he said that, that those late nineties years, he said, Detroit couldn't beat Colorado. Colorado couldn't beat Dallas. Dallas couldn't beat Detroit. And they were like the three teams that were after, really good. After, yeah. So yeah. So that was just, you know, that was after I'd left, but he's right. So, so Hitch had gone into Dallas and you, you know, he always, he does that. He uses the, t- the best teams as the marker is that, Hey, if you want to be a championship team, you got to figure out how to, how to right. beat these teams. And we were, it was the same thing when he came to us and it was the devils. He's like, if you want to be a championship team, you got to figure out how to beat the devils. Um, and we pushed them in, in Philadelphia this, the year we had them three, one as well. Yeah. And, and yeah, we, we're going we're to get into that. <laughs> 
can end up. So I'll, I'll wait then. Yeah, I'll, wait, I'll wait to rehash that memory. <laughs> well, let, let's let's go before we get to you coming to Philly. I mean, you had a couple other quick pit stops. Well, uh, oh, you got something, Russ? Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I going to sabotage do. the interview here. Go I want to say it's it. It might be the most memorable moment that you had in Hartford. I want to take you back to April seventh of nineteen ninety seven. It was a a 2-1 game, three minutes left in the second period. Buffalo's up 2-1. And you get treated, we all get treated, to one of, uh, you know, the things that you would, uh, uh, you know, like to see happen in sports. And that's a, a little bit of a sibling rivalry. As you and your brother, Wayne, who you mentioned earlier in the interview, dropped the, uh, dropped the gloves. And I, I just wanted to get, you know, I was going to do a breakdown here. Anthony, my dear friend over there who let me record, won't let me screen share. So I can't, I can't throw the video up there for you that's to, good. to do a breakdown. But <laughs> what do you remember about the fight? Uh, did, was there any talk between the two of you going into that game that there might come a moment where you could drop the gloves? Only, and uh, and only, how, how would you evaluate your performance? Sure. So the only conversation before the game was, Who's, who's flying mom and dad in for the game and uh, can they get in in time? And um, so he, Wayne, it was the first time we played against each other professionally. And Wayne, Wayne had, uh, it, he'd won the called a cup with Rochester the year before actually. And he, he would, he kind of, he'd now been up for the second half of that year is kind of, you know, making his mark as a, as an NHLer. And, um, uh, so, so my parents ended up staying home. They had the satellite. It's like, it's just too much, you know, it's too difficult to get there now. Like we'll just stay home and watch it. So they, they weren't there, but they, they weren't in attendance, but they were able to watch the game on TV. And like I said, it was towards the end of the second period. They were in a playoff spot. We're fighting for a playoff spot in Hartford. There's a melee at the net. It was started by Wayne. Pile goes over to the corner and then a fight breaks out on the other side. And everybody leaves. And Bob Boogner's standing there with Wayne and I, and, and he looks at, he looks at us and goes, no, no, no fighting. And then he realized that we were two brothers and he's like, oh, well, you guys aren't going to fight. So he left. So now the two of us are standing there and in my sick mind, um, I'm thinking, okay, here's an opportunity for me to rally my teammates. Um, and the, the building's starting to chant my name. And, and so I just blurted out, Hey, do you want to go? And I actually, in fact, thought he would say no. And he says, I don't care. <laughs> So I said, okay, so we dropped our gloves and, and it ended up being more of a, a noogie fest than anything. You know, I was throwing, it was air punches and, you know, you know, not trying to hit him or land anything. And, and I accidentally landed one. Yeah, you popped him with an uppercut. Yeah, the... so I hit him with one and, 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 uh, and then I kind of, it was like, then kind of snapping back to reality. And I was like, what am I doing? And, and he, when I hit Wayne, he got mad. So he's now trying to officially hurt me. And he throws an uppercut and just misses. I go, well, this isn't good. I better, I better end this. So I threw him down. And it's towards the end of the period. So instead of going to the penalty box, they send us to the locker room. So I go to the, you know, to the locker room, down the tunnel, into the, into the change room. And I still got all my gear on. And I'm like, that shouldn't have, shouldn't have happened. And I go right to the trainer, trainer's room. And I pick up the phone and I call my parents. So my dad picks up, my dad answers and I, and, and I go, you know, I'm sorry. And he's like, no, and he's laughing. It's, it's all good. It's part of the game. In the background, I hear my mom and my sister saying, no, it's not good. It's not okay. He's older. He should know better. <laughs> so, so my dad's tone quickly, quickly changed, and, and Wayne and I swore afterwards it would never happen again. And, and it's just one of those things that at the time, uh, it, was, it, was, you know, it, was, 
it was newsworthy. Um, I don't know if you remember the show, A Current Affair. Yeah. Uh, they reached out to us, wanted to do a, an interview on sibling rivalries, and then we're like, forget it. And then <laughs> guy, it went away, and then somebody, you know, foolishly went and invented YouTube, and and, uh, and then now the first question either one of us gets asked is, uh, can you tell us about the fight? You want to guess um, how many views it has? I, I don't even want to know. <laughs> you don't want to know? Oh. You can tell me, sure. I'm, I'm going to guess it. 10,000. 101,000 views. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, now you know why it's the first question I get asked. <laughs> That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. But tell me about Hartford. I mean, it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a forgotten place. And we had a little conversation with Chris Pronger uh, about it. And Kevin Deneen, we had Kevin Deneen on the show. And he talked a little bit about it. But I was always intrigued by Hartford. Um, I actually got to cover some minor league games there uh, after the fact, after the Whalers were gone, and they had the Hartford Wolfpack up there. Um, and I always just loved the fact that the building was, the arena was inside of a mall, and it was a, it was an interesting building. I always felt like it had a little bit of character and a little bit of atmosphere. They, 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 it, it had its own little bit of nostalgia, you know, uh-huh. the Brass Bonanza. Yeah. You were going, you were playing in the mall, and and. Um, and they had some really good teams through the eighties, you know, that, 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 uh, and if you look at those teams, uh, somebody did a, a count of how many guys from those teams are actually NHL head coaches and, and or general managers. And, and the numbers, like, it's just crazy. Like mm-hmm. the amount of guys that are still involved in the game at you know, the highest level. And, 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 and I loved my year in, um, I loved my year in, in Hartford. It was, it was, it, it um, it was becoming very difficult for me in, in Detroit. Um, you know, if, if I scored two goals, they wanted to know I didn't fight. If I got in a fight, they wanted to know I didn't score two goals. Um, uh, amongst other things. And, and, and so I, I needed a fresh start. If I was going to continue playing the game um, for another 10 years, I needed, I needed to change the scenery. And, and so uh, it, it did that for me. I, the people, the people loved me. Um, uh, because I wanted to go to Hartford, you know, not many guys say, Oh, send me to Hartford. Well, I was send me to Hartford. I'm, I'm happy to be in Hartford and we had a good team. And, um, uh, it was, it, I really, I, when I went there, I thought I was going to be there for two years. I, you know, I actually bought a house. I, I thought we were going to be there two years. I knew, knew there was talk about moving after the first year, they ended up moving the franchise to Carolina. Um, uh, but I, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my, my time in Hartford and, uh, and I still think it's one of the classiest jerseys as well. Like it's, yeah, the road was incredible. The Hurricanes bring it out. They have it as an alternate jersey now. They they that they, they yeah. trot it out. That's how great it is. Um, so Carolina obviously has got a great fan base now. But what was it like going there at that time when they really didn't know a lot about hockey? <laughs> as difficult as you know some of the challenges I you know I had personally in Detroit. Um, the challenges of being a professional hockey player and playing in Carolina at that time was, was, you know, far greater. Like we, you're talking about, uh, you know, one night, uh, we had to drive to, so we played, we lived in, in Raleigh where they're building a new rink and we played in Greensboro, which was 70 miles, 70 miles from my home. There's some guys in North Raleigh who were, who were probably 80, 85 miles. And, uh, going into Greensboro on a Tuesday night, playing the Ottawa Senators in front of less than a thousand people, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't fun. I mean, uh, there were some nights where we had some decent crowds, you know, the Rangers would come in or the Penguins would come in, the Red Wings would come in. Um, just like some of the Southern, you know, 
cities now when you know they've got these large fan bases all over and they travel and, um but it was it, it was it was tough but what got me through was the was the idea that um you know they're building this brand new state-of-the-art building one one exit over from my place i was gonna be five minutes from and i remember kevin holler saying you know what are you guys getting all excited about like none of us are gonna you know even see the new building and i'm like you may not see the new building but i'm gonna play there for a long time only to have you know only to have a you know contract uh, dispute that you know resulted in me you know leaving it never ending up playing even playing in that building so um i love the area um uh, tremendous climate it wasn't just wasn't a, you know wasn't a hockey atmosphere for me and I, I know it's totally different i mean justin williams who's a close friend of mine mm-hmm. found a way to circle back to carolina to end his career has uh, built a beautiful home um they love it there uh and so um yeah it, it seems to uh they, they seem to be um finding a way to make it work yeah that's good so then after carolina is when you come to philadelphia um and, and you got traded for a very popular player here <laughs> you know i mean that's it, Brendan Moore going out and then you coming in that's i could still remember i mean that was when that happened was that was the year before i started covering the team um and i was and i was like wow i can't believe that they just did this and then it, it kind of, it kind of just we kind of lost track of it and lost sight of it because the team got really good really quick um and a lot of people you know i've talked to a lot of people who played on that team you know bush was a rookie and um and, and talked to bundy a couple of times and and there was a real belief that that was a team that should have won the whole thing what what is what is your recollection of that time. I know it was kind of crazy there at the end and we'll get into that specifics with Lindros and everything else, but what was, what was your recollection of that team I when you first it, got here? I think it was based on the cast of characters that were there. Um, there was just, it was, um, it was professional, but it was jovial. Um, it was comedic, but, um, mature, um, it had all, it had the ingredients of what, you know, a championship team would look like a young goaltender who's, who's hungry and he's finding ways to win games or steal games for you. Uh, enough veteran leadership to, to manufacture enough offense to win games and, and enough, um, you know, enough uh, older guys who understood their, their role and their responsibility on the team and didn't complain about getting, you know, you know, 20 minutes of ice just wanted to see, you know, to see the team be successful and, and had, had real buy-in um, from, from the group of guys. We weren't the most talented. I mean, you think, just think of Pittsburgh. I mean, they were, uh, you think of some of the names on that team. I mean, they were just way more talented than we were. Um, but we, we were just lunch pail, you know, uh, hard hat, blue collar, you know, ready to go to work. And, and it really, really fit the, um, the the idea of what Philadelphia Flyers hockey you know was and should be, um, and and uh, and so we just were kind of plugging along. All, all of a sudden, we turn around and we're up three one on the on the New Jersey uh, on the New Jersey on the New Jersey Devils, and um, and thinking we're going to the Stanley Cup Finals and thinking about you know how, how you know how we're going to beat the Calgary Flames and, and go on and win. So, so, um, it was, um, 
it was, it, like I said, it wasn't the most talented team I ever played on, but it was certainly the, the, the team that had the, the, the best buy-in. So let, let's look at that New Jersey series for a second. You guys go up 3-1 on that team. And, and obviously they were, they were the team that, you know, everyone knew you're going to have to beat them to get, you know, to get there. I mean, that was the, they, they were kind of the gold standard, right, in the Eastern Conference uh, for the last, you know, five years. Um, and you're up 3-1. Game five is the one that, that always bothers me, bothered me as a, as a fan back then, because that was the one I felt like the team really just, you didn't, you guys weren't there. It was just like a, a game like, I don't know if it was, you, you, you kind of thought you had it in the bag kind of thing at that point. That one bothered me more than six and seven. Um, I'm sure that, you know, when you got, when you look back at it, it probably, you know, eats, eats at you a little bit too, right? And it hasn't taken this length of time to know that that's where the whole thing turned, right? Um, same as I said in Detroit where, you know, the one year we had – we had to uh, go seven games against St. Louis, end up costing us, um, you, you know, in the finals um, or the conference finals. Game five was the turning point of that series. We, I remember on the, being on the bus uh, on the ride back and, I, you know, us talking about, you know, winning the next game and the, the, the rest we were going to get before the finals started. And it's, it's so much a mindset. It, it, re- it really is. And I, you, look at, you look at Tampa Bay, the, you know, so fresh in our minds right now is to what happened last year to understanding what needs to take place in order to have success. And I, it was, I had another, you know, another one like that in Philadelphia when the year we, we went seven games with um, uh, Toronto. Um, and, and the next year I'm like, we can't go seven games. We just beat each other up so bad. We've got to finish this thing before. And we were able to beat Toronto in six games. Um, and 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 get and then you know get against Tampa. We had to, I'm like we have to be fresher against Tampa, and and we pushed them to the to the brink and the limit. But game five was the sore spot for us too, because we really felt like we 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 had a missed opportunity. Um, and then I mean at that point New Jersey is back on track. They feel as though they're um, you know they're now in the driver's seat. The pressure's all on us. Um, we're going back there. Now you're like, okay, you're going back to their building. It's hard building to win, and so, so sick. Now you're six. Same game seven at home. It's a, it's a, it's a coin toss, and that's yeah. where we were at. And that yeah. we should never been. We should never been in that situation. And and I'm sure the pressure mounted more when the decision was made to bring Eric back for game six, right? I mean, I, and I know that there were some people in that locker room who were okay with it, and some who weren't, and. Um, I, well, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll let you tell the story. <laughs> you know, and, it's, and that's not, it's not entirely fair because I, for me, it was my first year there. I was, I was a little bit indifferent on it. Right. Um, but, but uh, the, the sense was amongst the guys was not that Eric couldn't make a difference, but we have a good thing going here. Why, like, why do you need to change? The, why do you need to upset the apples? And now the focus goes away from what we're trying to do. And the focus goes to, the, the, the situ the scenario or the situation as opposed to the result and and um it it, it just it, it did it upset the apple cart and, and there was no other way to explain it and 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 i, and I like eric but but that wasn't from a team's from a team perspective it wasn't the right i would have much rather us lose game six and you say input input in him for game seven why did it have to be game six like like 
get give us an opportunity give us a chance we're the guys who got you here let us get you know and then if he and if he's healthy and ready put him in the finals mm-hmm. but it wasn't it wasn't um it was a misstep it was a it was a miscalculation um I wouldn't say that's what cost us. We, we ended up losing because we, we, we got beat. Um, but but um, most of the guys in the locker room, if they would have been asked, um, would have would have chose a different would have chose a different route. Uh, just to go back a little bit earlier in that same playoff, and it, your, your name came up uh, about a month ago, obviously, or a month and a half ago now, when the um, when the playoffs all started. Um, the g- first game between Tampa and Columbus goes five overtimes, and then, of course, obviously, you know, everybody's reflecting back on the Pittsburgh game. You know, it, you're, you, they showed your goal. It had to be a dozen times that night. Um, you know, Bush is calling the game from from between the between the benches, and they missed beating the record, I think, by like 20 seconds or something like that. Um, so uh, you guys still have the modern record for the longest game. Just just from your perspective, I mean, looking back on it now 20 years later, I mean, what was what was that like? And, and I'm sure that the stories become bigger, bigger fishtails, right, as they go, as the years go by. No question. And and um, and to speak of the game, the, you know, the, the game this year was, it was literally the first night of, of the playoffs. Yeah. So – I actually sat and watched that entire game, yeah. which was, and it was, I thought it was amazing hockey. Like I was like, I, I was riveted to the TV for, you know, the better part of, uh, you know, six, seven hours, whatever, whatever the game took to play. And, um, and, and, I, and I always, and then, and then, like you said, Boosh is between the benches and then Jonesy's in the studio. That's I, mean, right, yeah. I mean, people got such a uh, inside look at what, our game was about, I thought, I thought it was just, I thought it was great TV. Um, the game back in 2000 uh, at the time was, was it just, was an opportunity for us to get back in the series. We, you know, I, I, you know, after we, after I scored and, and went to the locker room and I, you know, went, then went out in the hallway and just kind of catching a deep breath and thinking to myself, like a big goal, you know, a huge moment, but this moment is going to grow with time. And it's going to have more meaning, and it's going to be more memorable um, as time goes by, just because of you know, you know because of the um, circumstance. And and sure enough, it has. And then it's you know for me, it's it's a wonderful memory. Um, it's one of my fondest memories as a player, certainly as a Philadelphia Flyer. Um, it ranks up there, right up there with uh, with Game Six of the Eastern Conference Finals with the Tampa Bay Lightning at home. Um, um, and and it's it's grown in lore and, 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 you know, that night the kids were watching with me too. And, and they get a, they get a kick out of, you know, you know, hearing their name and, and, um, uh, and there'll come a point in time where it just like almost happened that night, you know, somebody, you know, there'll be a game that will go longer. Um, and it'll, you know, it'll diminish the, the game a little bit, but, uh, until that point in time, it's, um, you know, it's a, a proudful moment. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned game six against Tampa. And the reason I say that is because I've argued um, that that goal was a, was a more, in my mind, was a more iconic goal than what happened against Pittsburgh. And the, only, and the reason being was of just the, the importance of it. I mean, yes, the, it was an, the game against Pittsburgh was an important goal, and everybody remembers it because it was five overtimes, and that's, you know, the longest game, whatever. But to me, being down, about to be eliminated – and to have that play happen, it was it was kind of unconscious. Like you, you kind of just flip the puck across the crease and wrap around behind the net to yourself almost, 
and, and, t- and tucked it in. And that was in the middle of, uh, Keith, one of the better playoff runs that any individual player I've ever seen ha- have. Like you, were, you were on fire. Um, it, j- j- boy, I, t- I remember talking to Hitch about that, and, and he said his greatest regret in hockey, and it's the Hall of Fame coach, was not winning the Stanley Cup with that team. Um, just t- t- that 0304 team was one of my favorites to cover. C- can you talk a little bit about that group and, and that game, game six, and, and just how it just all kind of just, just missed the opportunity mostly because of injuries on the, on the blue line? It, it was, and, and now, and that was a talented team, right? When you talk about a group of talented players, guys who are, you know, coming into their prime, guys who are coming out of their prime, big names. Um, uh, all in, all in attitude, all committed to to a common goal, and 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 not coming off the throttle, and not taking for granted that we'd got a game seven, just got beat in, in a game in, in game seven. Not you know, not like you know, we, we made a mistake here. We the the um, we we thought that we it was destiny. We were thought you know it, it was our turn because of game six. Um, but we knew that the, the opponent we were playing had, had been lights out from, uh, from Christmas on. Um, and it was going to take a Herculean effort to beat them. And, and we, and we fell just short, but, um, I would agree that goal. And so for me, that goal was huge and monumental. Um, uh, but just the game in general, like it was, you know, for me, it was, it, it's probably my single best performance. Um, and because of the stage, it, 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 that much more, you know, that much, that much bigger of a game or better of a game. But um, it, it was it was a little bit unconscionable. It was it was uh, uh, the shot came from the point. I knew the time was you know I knew goalies getting ready to come. I think it was Dan McGillis shot the puck, and um, and I, I redirected it with my skate, and and I thought it was going to go in. I'm like. I was excited, and then I was like, "No, don't go in because it's going to be a kick goal. It's going to be considered kicked in." And then, and so I went around, and all of a sudden, the puck's on the other side, and I'm like, "It's a tap in." Yeah. Um, and so it was, you know, it was, it was true elation, and um, I don't think we had any doubt that we were going to win that game in overtime. That was just, um, and uh, and then game seven, we just we just couldn't get on track, and and uh, and they clamped us down, and and. It was a one nothing or two one game in Tampa. It was definitely less um, uh, of 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 the atmosphere that we had in Game Six for sure. Well, I remember. I mean, when I got a chance to talk to Vinny Lacavalier when he came to Philadelphia uh, a few years later, and I remember talking to him about that, and he said we didn't think we had a chance to beat that team going in. Right. He said. He said. He said. I'll admit it to you now. He said we we saw we were playing the Flyers. We were like, uh oh. Right. Like they didn't, they didn't think that they could beat you guys. And then, of course, you had all the injuries on the on the blue line. I mean, you had it was so you were missing. I think Rico uh, was out, Ragnarsson, and Malakov. I think were all the ones that were yeah, hurt. I mean, I mean, look who you're talking about. You're talking about yeah. one, two. You're talking about one, two, and three. Yeah, on, on your blue line, and and now you're taking Sammy Kapanen, who's using your top six. Yeah, or top nine at least, and you're moving him on defense, who did an unbelievable and admirable job, but. I mean, if now it affects your depth up front, mm-hmm. and and that was the one, that was the one um, was shortcoming of that group was we we just didn't have enough enough depth on the back end to to see it through. 
Yeah. Ross, you were going to say something there? Yeah, it, was there a moment in Game 7, you know, you mentioned that it kind of felt like there was this magical run. Is there a moment in Game 7 where it just felt like the magic had disappeared? Like, there was a moment that you took the ice, or there was a moment in that game where you just said, you know what, like, this is it's interesting you say that, because because I had a, I had a pregame routine, you know, of getting loose, and, and, um, and right from, before, so right from before the game, after warm-up, after period one, after period two, I literally kept continu- was continually trying to find my balance. I was trying to find my, my game, my chi, my energy, and I just, I just, I, I couldn't get it. I literally couldn't, I couldn't get it. And, and, uh, and, and so it wasn't it was probably my worst game of the playoffs. Um, and, and I just felt if I, if I would have been balanced, if I would have had my game, we, we would we win that hockey game. I, but I just, I, I couldn't find it. I couldn't get it. And so, um, and that, you know, not that it had to be me, you know, could have been somebody else, but maybe, maybe other guys felt the same way. It's interesting, Keith, we, we talk about that playoff run and, and how great your playoffs were uh, in that, 2003-2004 season. But looking back on it, should you have even played? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I hate to ask it that way. I mean, yeah. I, mean I know you had the, the concussion um, yeah. in February, right? I think that year, I think that was the Holy Kit, yeah. uh, if I recall correctly. It was. Um, um, so that's why I ask. I mean, it's a long time ago now. Um, to, to, uh, you know, really remember, but, um, there was, there were stretches of that playoff run where I was still seeing double vision. Um, and you know, I was playing, you know, I was playing post-concussed and, and, um, listen, there's some time, there's some moments in my career where I'm not proud of, you know, how, you know, how I handled my injuries and it probably ended up costing me, you know, some years. Um, uh, but that, that run, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't regret, you know, even, even if I was injured, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change. I wouldn't trade that in for anything. It was, it was, um, I thought it was our, I thought it was our turn. I thought it was our opportunity and, and I was willing to sacrifice. There was, uh, you know, other ones where like in 2000, in 2000, the year of five overtimes, two, two games later. So we came back and played at home and then game six back there. I don't know if you remember, but I got taken off the ice on a stretch. Right. Um, from Bob Bugner hit at center ice. Right only to come back and play two nights later against New Jersey, New Jersey Devils. Should have never done it. I remember the neurologist, you know, sitting across from me and saying, you know, Keith, I passed my baseline and sitting across from her and her saying, you know, Keith, you passed your baseline. There's nothing I personally can do. I can't assess you any differently. All I can do is do the data of it. She says, but just be very careful. And I remember laughing and being like, I'm good. I got this. I'm okay only to walk out, out of her office onto the street and have the worst headache I've ever had in my life because I focused so hard to pass my baseline test. And, and, uh, and, and that to me was the one biggest mistake I ever made as far as my injuries go. And you, I've heard you say this before and, and that's, and I, and I get it, but isn't it fair to say that we're in a different place today when it comes to, concussions than we were 15 years ago right I mean and back then it was it was the thing to do like you know ah it's just it's just you know just got a little bit of a headache you can play through a headache that's not you know hockey players play through a lot worse than that when in actuality that's probably far more dangerous of an injury than playing with a high ankle sprain or something right yeah yeah and uh 
and it was, it was, it, and it, it, that's why, you know, that's why I've been such a, an advocate for concussion and concussion awareness is because it's no matter what they're doing at the highest level. And I, and you know, I think there's a trickle down for whatever NHL or, you know, professional sports does. It really is imperative what we're doing at the grassroots level to change the mindset, to make, change the culture of, of how we approach uh, specifically head injuries. Um, and, and, and it's, and I've, I've seen change. I think we've all seen changes, you know, like, um, we no longer leave it up to the player. Uh, parents, the, old, the parents who used to climb over the glass at a game and say, put my son back in there, he's fine, is, the, is now the one climbing over the glass saying, get my kid out. And, and that's the right mentality. Um, you, you know, there's, no, there's nothing more important than your brain, and there's no game or sport more important than your health. And, and so uh, it's important that, um, that, our, that our youth and, and those who protect them understand it. Russ, I know you had a question that you wanted to kind of attack on this, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've got two. So well, go ahead. How, how do you discern the difference between having migraines and potentially having something that could be a, a longer reaching thing as a result of playing, like post-concussion syndrome? Like, is there a line of demarcation where you start to go, you know what, this this is something different. Does that moment happen? Because right now the Flyers have a young center who has been, you know, we're, we're told has a migraine disorder, but has had concussions in the past. And for fans, and I think even for media alike, we haven't experienced it. So I don't know if we have a way to discern the difference between migraines just existing on their own and maybe something being a, you know, a result of a concussion and there being fallout. Is there a sure. way to know? Right. So, so a couple answers to, to the question. Um, you know, uh, it, uh, for the longest time, the injury was, it was subjectively diagnosed. Um, it's important that we follow the science and that we, that we have objective tracking tools that tell us, hey, if this is off, this is off, if this is off, and or this is off, you know, the best decision for you and your health is not to play. In, in, in the instance of um, uh, a Nolan Patrick, who I don't know his, his case history and I don't pretend to be a, a doctor, um, my, you know, when I, people would ask me, the first thing I would say is, if you don't feel right, you're, you're probably not right. And so the reality is for somebody who's, even if it's chronic migraine, if, if, that's, if that's an issue, then you, then you have to contemplate what is the long-term, you know, prospectus for you and and playing the game if if it's if it's actually that severe and that chronic and and then the reality is is that he you know in all likelihood he probably needs to not play um and he probably needs to retire and go away from the game and 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 try and enjoy and live his life um as opposed to you know chasing after something because you're not 100 percent sure of, of what of what the underlying issue is um, if it, if it is concussion, then you, you know, you, you continue to do what you're doing and hope that you recover. And at some point, you know, you, you have to, you also have to be real realistic about what, uh, what, what your end game is and what, uh, what you're trying to accomplish, um, and make a decision based on that. Keith, how important was the conversation you had with Jim McCrossin prior to the 2000 six, seven season, I think it was, or seven, eight, whichever year it was, um, to, to the, your well-being today. 
because I, I I get the sense that you would have tried to play again. It's the it it's the one. I'm an emotional guy to begin with, but it's the it's whenever it comes up, it becomes a very emotional moment for me because uh-huh. because um, uh, I tried for the better part of a year, yeah, to, to come back and and just the way you know the way that that he handled that moment in time for me as a person. Um, was um you know he was my health first mm-hmm. and and um and so uh you know i i, I agree if, if jimmy mccrossin doesn't tell me keith you know we appreciate your efforts um and and you know we know you've tried everything you can but i in good conscience i can't ever give you permission to play again <laughs> was uh, for for me long term was the right decision as much as i didn't want to hear it but I think I also did want to hear it <laughs> right? because, because I, if he doesn't, I just keep going. I keep going. I keep trying and I'm trying until I get out there. And, uh, you know, the day I retired, my, my symptoms didn't go away. It was, it was seven full years before I felt any semblance of normalcy. So <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> imagine trying to return to play for seven years, but, but uh, it was, Jimmy did the right thing in that moment for me as a person, as a human. That's awesome. I mean, it, it's one of those stories I think that kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. You know, everybody always thinks that team doctors or team trainers try and force their players to come, oh, come on, you can play. Oh, you can get out there and play. You know, it ma- the team matters more than everything, anything else. And in, in, in this instance, this was not the case. And, and the way Jimmy has always been, I think, fair, you know, it's fair to say, with not just you, but with a lot of players, is I think that he's always put the player's health, long-term health first. I think so. And, you know, yeah. there, there would be other organizations that would maybe frown upon that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you were to ask them behind closed doors or even not ask them behind closed doors, but, but, but Jimmy has been a solid for the flyers for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. When, uh, when go ahead, Russ. You know, especially the, the way that, you know, we're talking about concussions and, and the way that they're treated and the way that they're diagnosed and how there have been all these developments over the, the past couple of decades. For the parents who listen to the show who have kids who are playing hockey, is there a, a certain way that a family or a parent uh, should advocate for their kid in terms of, like you said, that there, there's a difference between the, the parent years ago who would have jumped over the glass saying, put my kid in versus now saying, take my kid off the ice. Is there a, a certain responsibility that you think the, a parent should have in advocating for their kid? Should they be teaching their child about advocating for for himself or herself playing this game, and and how much of the onus really does fall on a coach, especially at the youth level? You're not surrounded by a, a ton of medical professionals who are doing a, a great job of of you know analyzing these things. How how much of the onus falls on each of those groups, the parent, the player, and the coach? So the responsibility falls on all of them, um, and, and it goes you know in every scenario it goes beyond that. Any, any any support staff, whether it be parent, coach, trainer, manager, um, wh- whoever it is, has has a responsibility to um, to be the line of defense for the for the health of the, that player. And there's and you know from from coaching seminars to um, um, 
uh, you know, advocacy to education to there, there's there's platforms and there's there's um, knowledge uh, and information out there for those who want to understand how to protect their kids and not bury their head in the sand. It's literally at your fingertips, and all you have to do is is want to understand um, that information. Um, and so, um, you know, so as long as people, you know, heed the advice and, and you know, do their own research and, and educate themselves, then we can protect our kids. There's, there's, there's no question. People ask me all the time, well, your concussion history, like, how, you know, how do you let your boys play hockey? And, and, and I just, I truly believe that, that my demise wasn't, wasn't, um, didn't develop over, you know, four documented concussions in the National Hockey League. I believe it's from years of abuse of, of my, uh, of my body and, 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 and my lack of knowledge and, and my response to it. I like, um, we, we discussed earlier, right from, right from the time I was a young kid getting bumped on the head was, ah, you got, you know, you got, you got your bell rung, you're fine, get right back out there. And, and then, you know, having, I remember one year in school, I literally was fatigued and tired the whole year. Um, and I think it was before I even left to play junior hockey and I just couldn't recover. And I thought it was just over, overuse, overplay, um, overwhelmed. And the reality was it was probably post, it was probably post concussion. I was probably recovering from post concussion and, um, and, and so I'm repetitively putting myself in harm's way. Whereas, you know, we, we all know about second impact syndrome. And so my, my oldest one who's playing, or my second oldest one who's playing uh, college hockey at, at Omaha, he's had three documented concussions, but each time we, we, we rested him and he recovered to baseline. And, th- and then it, we extended it. So every time he returned, he was, we, I feel like he was, I feel it's like a, a bucket of water. If you keep filling the bucket of water, eventually the bucket's going to overflow. If you fill a bucket and you, and you let it evaporate or you pour some out, or you bring it back to the same level, it never overflows. And so if we, if we treat, you know, if we treat our, 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 um, our brain the same way, we have the opportunity to, to let it heal. Um, and, and um, that's not hundred percent. It's not scientific. And it's just, you know, my own personal opinion. Um, but, but there seems to be, um, a groundswell of that for those people that I've talked to and those who have recovered from concussion. Uh, Keith, I know we're running close to the end of our time here, um, but I wanted to, I wanted to give you an opportunity to, um, you know, we're talking about your kids and I want you to brag about them a little bit um, <laughs> because I mean, your, your one son got to, you know, make his NHL debut this past season. Um, but I'm going to let you, let you, you know, brag about how well the kids are doing and, um, and also, I mean, we're contemporaries and you're only a couple years older than me. And, uh, you know, I have kids that are about the same age as your children and, uh, your grandpa, your grandpa now, and <laughs> that's starting to worry me a little bit. <laughs> so I want to talk, I wanted to hear you talk to me a little bit about what that's like now to be, uh, to be a grandfather. Yeah, well, it's, 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 um, it's, it's wonderful. Um, uh, I have two grandkids now. My my oldest one, Corey, and his wife had their second about two months ago. So a boy. Yeah. Um, so they've got a girl and a boy now. And and uh, people are like, well, you're just too young to be a grandfather. And I'm like, well, I was also too young to be a father of four, but I was. <laughs> so so uh, you know, my, my my wife and I we had kids when uh, when we were young. We did it reverse instead of 
instead of uh, you know enjoying each other's company for the first 10 years and then having kids we had kids and, and figured that we'd enjoy each other's company when they were older and out of the house and, and through the winter months there we are empty nesters um, uh, summer months we get them we get the boys home and my daughter's home now she but she's bought a place around the corner so she's close and and Corey's only 20 minutes away so everybody's always always close at hand but um, uh, being a grand grandparent is uh, is a lot of fun. Uh, my the, my granddaughter's at an age where you know I can start throwing the ball with her and and uh, kicking the ball with her and and, and she's communicating so so that's uh, certainly um, uh, fun whenever we get together. Um, Caden obviously, as you said, you know uh, had the opportunity to play in um, his uh, his first two NHL games this year for Montreal. Um, it, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I think maybe it su- surprised me, you know, how quick, you know, I, he was he was up in December and, and uh, you know, weren't, we weren't expecting it, but it was certainly, a, you know, a, a nice surprise. Um, and, and he did remarkably well, but he's, um, he's got a bright future. Um, and then uh, Chase, um, uh, who's two years older than, than uh, Caden, is a forward at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. He's in his uh, junior year and, and continues to develop. He's on a different path, but he uh, he's super skilled. And uh, you know, if he if he if he wants it, to, to, you know, there's an opportunity there for him because he's six foot three, you know, two hundred pounds, and and um, uh, it's hard to find six foot three centermen. You know, they don't grow on trees. So so uh, you know, if he wants it, he's you know he's just got to put the time in. Who was the most nervous person in Bell Center that night, Caden, you or Lisa? So I like I, I would if, I mean I know how nervous I was so but uh, but I but I I've also seen video of Lisa so I know that she was uh, she was pretty nervous she she never used to get nervous you know and and I didn't either you know when when because I same thing I I coached Caden all the way through um, his minor hockey until he went away and and people were like it must be hard to be a goalie coach or goalie dad and I'm like not really I mean and because. You're on the bench. You feel like you have some control over what goes on, and you're involved in the game and the dynamic. And then when you're as a spectator and you have no control, things just completely change. Like I became <laughs> a nervous wreck. I was I was I was a goalie dad. Um, Caden gets a good chuckle at at, uh, at me when you know when he when he sees video of me you know, at at, the, at those big moment games. It was the same thing as the World Juniors, you know, for the gold medal game there. He uh, you know he just he just goes and plays like he, he's got such a great disposition about him. Uh, doesn't matter the stage. He, he still he goes up and performs the same way. Um, and you need that for, as a goaltender. So I, you know, I think uh, there's tremendous upside there. And, and finally you're um, you've, you've taken the, uh, the, the route to go into the USHL now with, uh, with uh, Youngstown Phantoms. Talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, uh, you know, I've always, I, I've been a, uh, an advocate of, of USHL kind of becoming more and more of a feeder nowadays for the uh, for the NHL. But um, how did you get involved with with the Phantoms? And, and now that you got you got a bigger role there, I think, than you originally you were kind of just advising them at first, and now you're you're kind of like the guy there. Right? Talk, talk to me a little bit about that. So um, the owners in um, in uh, in Youngstown are, are business associates of mine. Um, I had started a hockey business, camps, clinics, spring teams tournament tournaments with my brother you know 20 years ago and uh we sold off merged you know that business with some you know with some investors out of maryland um and uh and those same investors started buying up uh rinks 
you know, across around the mid Atlantic and, and we actually were, were closing on uh, th- you know, three skate zones. Right. I was going to ask um, you about that this, this week. Um, and, and part of his, and I love his, I love his strategy right. and I love his philosophy. It's, it's all about creating opportunity. And that's why I was so heavily invested in coaching in South Jersey when I finished playing as well was, was I wanted to create the same opportunities for kids that I, that I was given and I, and I got. Um, and so, but I was never able to, to make the kind of capital investment to be a rink owner or a, you know team owner um, uh, in order to continue that progression for them. And, and so he brought me in uh, to help out with that. Um, it's, and so it's been, you know, it's, it's again, it's, it's all, for me, it's all about giving back to the game that gave to me. Um, and, and, and I've been given that uh, avenue to do that. And so uh, I'm enjoying it. It's, you know, it's, um, uh, opportunity to see kids, you know, go on and play in the USHL kids from the East coast. Um, and then, and then play in the USHL, which is the, you know, the best junior league in the U S and then from USHL go on and play, um, division one college hockey, which is to me, which it should be the end game. That's why I, you know, I always told my boys and I told the kids that I would coach is what's the, what you should try and get out of this is, is an education. Now, don't worry about playing, you know, in the NHL or playing pro hockey. But if you can get the game to pay for your education, you, you're way, you're you're already way ahead. Um, and so, uh, every, anytime I see kids move on to play Division One college hockey, um, it's fantastic. And, and college hockey is such a great game. I really, really enjoy the college game. Um, to see those kids, you know, go on to that level is extremely rewarding. Um, and so, um, that's probably the biggest reason why you know I stay involved. Uh, at the youth levels. Yeah, and and the, the one thing I'm glad you mentioned it because I, I forgot to ask, but the last thing I want to ask you about is the the um, Black Bear purchasing uh, the three skate zones. How is that going to work? Because we had some questions. People did uh, reach out to me asking me, you know, how is that going to work? Um, uh, as far as you know, is it going to be the same thing? Is there going to be something different? Because obviously the three. I mean, we're not talking about the one in Voorhees, but I think it's uh, Atlantic City. Uh, Northeast, Northeast Philly and Pensalkin, right? Uh, how are they going to work and be operated? And is it going to be the same as what, what it is yeah, now so, or a little bit different? So uh, it'd, be, it'd be hard to, to say right now if it's going to be same or, or work differently. I mean, uh, in certain uh, situations, it'll run the same. But if, it, if it's broken, we want to fix it. Um, and so um, there's, they, they, have a, they have a model that, that uh, has really worked, you know, as, as it incorporates the organizations that play out of the facilities as well. And again, I'm only a minority owner of this. I, re- I really was instrumental in brokering the deal. Um, and and, and I, I can be involved as much or as little as I want, really. Uh, that's, that's, that's my role. Um, and I, I, know, I just know my personality. I'm, I'm going to end up being more involved than, <laughs> than maybe uh, I should or, or, or need to be, but um, um, it's certainly an exciting adventure, exciting venture because as I said, I, you know, I was heavily involved in, in helping my boys develop in, you know, their game in South Jersey, but I was heavily involved with hockey in South Jersey. I did lots of different levels, the youth level and the high school level and, and, uh, and I want to see it, I want to see it grow and I want to see it flourish. And I was just talking to somebody the other day and we were talking about how many, so Caden's skating with, you know, the pro guys locally that are around right now. And you're talking about, you're talking about seven, eight, any guys playing in the NHL, Anthony D'Angelo, Johnny Gaudreau, Eric and Buddy Robinson, Caden, the Stevens boys, 
you know, they're all, you know, um, all guys who are, you know, either played in the NHL or have aspirations to play in the NHL or playing American Hockey League. Um, and so, you know, it continues to, you know, it continues to grow and the number of kids from my area that continue to um, uh, get to that level continues to uh, creep up. Hockey can be pretty expensive. And, and so the, the emphasis on trying to cultivate this feeling of, of hockey being for everyone, how much of an, of an emphasis is it to try to make the game more accessible to kids, especially who might not otherwise be able to afford to play the game? So, so there's challenges associated with that because one, you've got to find those kids that actually want that opportunity. And then two, it's, you know, ice cost, which is, which is, which is, you know, the biggest cost isn't the biggest challenge. It's the equipment and, and, um, and, 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 you know, the, you know, you can find the ice time, you find people probably to, to, to donate ice or, you know, cover ice costs but finding the kids that, that actually, Hey, here's an opportunity for you. And that's why the Snyder group is to me has been remarkable with how they've been able to, you know, put it together, but actually, you know, put pen to paper and then actually go out and, and accomplish it. Like it's, it's a huge undertaking. And, 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 um, you know, I, I'm always amazed at, at, uh, at the Snyder youth foundation because that's, it's a massive operation and what they've done there is absolutely incredible. And when you talk about opportunity, that's real opportunity. Well, Keith, uh, we really do appreciate all of your time today. This was, this was really awesome catching up with you. Uh, thank you for coming on the snow, the goalie podcast today. It was just, uh, our fans are going to enjoy this uh, immensely. Um, and uh, best of luck to you got to you and we'll uh, catch up with you down the road. It's my pleasure. Thanks guys. I know I say this all the time after we get an interview done. I say, if you didn't feel anything in that interview, if there wasn't a moment that raised you the highest of high, the lowest of lows, tugged at your heartstrings, then you got to take your fingers, put them on your neck and feel for a pulse. That is one of the most open, honest, and at some points, emotional interviews we've ever had in our years of doing this podcast. We can't thank Keith Primo enough for not only being on the show, but opening up about some really hard things to talk about, especially knowing that his career was cut short and being so open and honest uh, about where things went wrong, where he thinks he himself uh, might have let himself down, the longevity of his career and also in life, uh, forcing himself back in and, and playing through things. A big thank you to Keith Primo for coming on the show. I'm sure that uh, the people are really going to enjoy it. And- and uh, Anthony, how, how do you feel after that? Well, I, you know, it's funny, Russ, because we keep getting great interviews, right? I mean, we, you know, and there's no doubt about it. You go back and th- back through the ones that we've done uh, earlier in the summer when we had um, Chris Pronger and we had Danny Briere and Mike Knubel and Ken Hitchcock and Craig Berube and all the folks that we had. And, and, and we had some great lines and some great stories and anecdotes and stuff like that. This was another level. You know, and you just think, you know, how can we get better than what we've been doing, right? How do we, how do we top the interviews that we had? I mean, this summer, I mean, it was going to be kind of a hard thing for us to do because we had such a great run, right, in the summer with all those great interviews. And I sat there and said, well, how can we potentially top that? And I wasn't certain that Primo would, would top it. 
But at the, what I knew about Keith Primo from my years covering him was that he was a guy who never held back. He was a guy who would face the tough questions, who would say the things that had to be said, even if it was, even if it was something you didn't necessarily want to hear. Um, I, you know, I can think of a time when Keith Primo called a meeting with the media. Like he, he called a meeting with us to complain, you know, to complain about something. And, and like, like he was that kind of emotional guy, right? It always wore his heart on his sleeve. So I knew it at the very least we would get some of that. But he took it to another level. And, and you know, we, th- we thought about it. And there were, there were certainly, and we, you know, we teased them before the interview here at the beginning of the pod. There were certainly three things that really stuck out. And I think that we should, we should address here um, uh, in the, in the post, uh, post-interview wrap-up portion. The first one, um, and I think the, probably the one that's most important for the current fans uh, and the current, of, the, of the current team, is, is the, uh, which blew me away. I can't believe that he suggested that Nolan Patrick should retire. Um, and that just kind of, you know, came out of nowhere, came out of left field. And, and it was funny because, to me, because it wasn't that he was suggesting he should retire because of concussions. Like, that was the thing that I really thought he was going to, he was going to, when he said it, when he first said it, I'm sitting there saying, is he saying this because he's, because he's, he's suggesting that there's a con- this is concussion related because we don't have that news we don't know if it's concussion related i mean we've only been told it's a migraine disorder and you know Ch- only chuck fletcher said recently that um maybe there might be a link to the concussions he had previously they don't know they're still trying to figure that out and so for keith to come out and say that and i'm sitting there saying whoa does he have some kind of information that none of us had but then he said afterwards he said if it's not if it is concussion and he's coming back from post-concussion, then he got, you know, keep working and come back. So he was suggesting if it's a migraine disorder, that's something that's going to affect him his entire life. That they don't know the origin of. Like that, right. that was the, that was the, the yeah. point. Yeah. And then that should be reason enough to stop playing. Now, I did check in with, with a couple people on this. And, you know, there was one person who I highly respect who said, the one thing to keep in mind is, is Keith is really, really just wants the best for every player. And so he doesn't want players to have to experience what he experienced as a player. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, you're going to hear that kind of advice from him a lot. And it won't be, I mean, it, it just happens to be in this instance that we're talking Nolan Patrick, but I mean, you could find any player who's had a history of any kind of head related uh, uh, injuries, he's probably going to say something similar, right? So, so there is that little caveat. And then I also talked to someone who said that they were 99.9% sure that Nolan Patrick is going to try and play for the Flyers in 2020, 2021, whatever the season begins. So it's, it's, you know, we do want to put that caveat out there that this is not saying Nolan Patrick should never play hockey again. But at the same time, to hear someone who's experienced what Keith Primo's experienced. I mean, there were days when Keith Primo, and he, he didn't say this in the interview, um, and I, I'm mad at myself for not bringing it up when we were talking about his concussions, but there were, he used to say to his wife, Lisa, um, does my head hurt today? Like, that's what he would say because his mood was, he wanted to know what his mood was. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, if he was in a bad mood and didn't know it, that the way he used to ask his wife was, does my head hurt today? 
like it's that's, that's, like that's heartbreaking. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so to to have um, to have him say the things that he said to me, that's where the weight of this is, right? I mean, you know, we could sit here and talk about what you know what will Nolan Patrick look like when he comes back to play? If he comes back to play, will it be as a flyer? Who knows? Blah blah blah. There's all kinds of hockey ramifications right but to hear a, a man who's experienced what he what Keith Primos has experienced as far as uh head and, and and brain related injuries to hear him suggest this to me was just like wow you know there's some perspective here and we really should consider it yeah and again like the the reason that I framed it like I did is because you and I luckily have not had to experience the kind of personal hell that that Keith Primo has gone through and now he admitted that a decent amount of that was brought on by himself, mm-hmm. that he played through uh, concussions or, you know, undiagnosed concussions that he realizes now, and maybe even realized at the time he probably shouldn't have played through, but also the, the science was different. You know, the science wasn't totally there. The mm-hmm. diagnosis and, and the process for being diagnosed w- was not the same. And so I totally get you know, conceptually how and why he would want to advocate uh, on behalf of players and, and, and player safety. And then, you know, uh, hockey's just a game. It might be the game that you love. It might be the game you've grown up your entire life and, and you've reached the pinnacle, you've reached the NHL, but like, and, and it might be almost impossible to think about walking away, but hockey only lasts for so long. And he's a guy who, you know, probably could have played on until, I don't know, would, would it have been out of the realm of possibility for Keith Primo to play into his late 30s or, or potentially even, you know, being a 40-year-old player? I mean, yeah, given his he style probably, of play, He probably had about another five years. He probably could have played another five years. taken him to age 39, right? Yep. yep. Um, he started in the league at age 19. This is the other thing. And I didn't – I thought about how I was going to frame it because I, I, didn't, I didn't know how he was going to go about answering that. And I look at the, the similarities, right? age 19, debuting in the NHL, having these kinds of, of, of head issues. Now, you know, Keith Primo might not have had as many uh, things diagnosed at, at that age, but he had, he had said that even as a kid, like he had had his bell rung numerous times. And you think about like what it takes to excel and to, to make it to the NHL. And granted, it was a different time, 1990 and, and 2000, what was it, 2018 when, or 2019 when Nolan Patrick um, you know, made the flyers. There's a lot of pressure that comes on being a, a top three pick and being a guy that the team is going to, you know, rely on. Um, I think it's a very telling thing. This isn't something where you have a player who's never gone through anything similar. Who's just throwing that out there because they want to be a hot take artist or, or they want to raise their national profile. That's not what this was. This was a guy who's gone through a lot. And ultimately wants what's best for a young man so that he doesn't have to experience with what Keith Primo had to. Um, That was very telling. Another thing that I thought was interesting that came out of this interview, the Eric Lindros thing. Yeah. The fact that you have somebody who is such a, an impact player in the prime of his career. Who's looking at this guy that, you know, everybody had, had kind of, you know, deemed the, the heir apparent to Wayne Gretzky, right? And he says, you know what? Like, this really screwed us up. 
And it, it wasn't just conjecture. It wasn't media or fans saying, oh, yeah, that probably threw things off. Like, this is somebody who was there who was an impact player saying, yes, one, it screwed us up. And two, and I don't think he said it in these words exactly, but I think based on the, the body language, it was a slap in the face to bring Eric Lindros back in when they did. Like, as if to say, we got ourselves to this point and you don't believe in us. You don't believe in our ability to close it out. And it was almost like the hockey gods kind of looked at the decision makers and said, okay, you're not going to roll with this team. Here's what you get. And he's right. If they were going to bring Lindros back, there were better times. There were better moments that you could have brought him back. And it was about as as much of a a damning indictment as I think you can get on that decision-making process to, to bring him back in to that team at that point. And you saw what happened. Yeah, well, it's interesting, and, and you know, he didn't say it in the interview, but I and I have spoken to other players on that team. Um, obviously, several of them still working, you know, are around, and um, so it's it's probably not hard to, to, you know, and I don't think any of them are, you know, keep this a secret. But they went into Coach Craig Ramsey's office when it was first being rumored that Lindros would come back for Game Six, and they asked him not to do it. They asked him to not put him in the lineup. And and the players felt at that time when they left that meeting with Ramsey that it was not going to happen. That when they, Okay, they had convinced the coach to not do it. Give them one more game. Give them the game six. See if they could win game six without him. But then they the, the message came down from above. It, that was a Bob Clark and Ed Snyder decision. Lindros is coming back into the lineup. And it's an interesting thing. I mean, because I mean, we just watched the Stanley Cup happen with Tampa winning the Stanley Cup. And they brought Stamkos back, yeah. right? You know, and it's, it was kind of the same. It's, it's, I mean, I wouldn't put Stamkos quite on Lindros's level. I mean, he, he's a great player. I and mean, he's probably a Hall of Famer, just like Lindros is. But he wasn't the dominant. He's not the dominant force that Lindros was in the NHL at that time. Okay. Yeah, he's he's dominant relative to his contemporaries for the most yes, part, but right. not not a necessarily a transcendent generational. Correct, player. correct. Okay, but the but the Lightning did it. They brought him back, and it worked. Um, uh, so so you know you could sit there and make fine. I mean, we can, I'm sure we can parse through the history of hockey and find other times where it did work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the fact of the matter is is that Keith, and this is where where Keith said it best. He said, we weren't the better team. We just believed we were, the buy-in was there. We just believed that, that we could win. And so maybe it was because of that, that they were, they felt spurned because they were, they were, you know, better than the sum of their parts. Um, And that maybe it was, that was also the reason that Clark decides to put them back in because he recognized we're not as good as the Devils. We're fortunate to be up 3-1 in this series. We had a terrible game five. It was awful. Let's put our transcendent player back in the lineup, and hopefully he can help us win. And what a lot of people don't remember is, even though they lost game six in New Jersey, Lindros was the best player on the ice in game six. Everybody remembers that he didn't play prior to that, and everybody, of course, remembers game seven, Scott Stevens knocking, you know, turning out his lights with that hit to the head. But in game six, Lindros was sensational. So, you know, 
would it have been better if they waited till game seven? Would they have won game six without Lindros? Like, were they that thrown off? Seems like they were. I mean, that's what Primo was saying. You know, and I've heard the same thing from a couple other guys who were on that team. They kind of felt like it just threw them off, you know, off their, off their game. Which but is wow. the – which is yeah. the human element that we always come back to so yes. much. In in theory, yeah. you play you, like you play that scenario out. Ninety nine out of hundred times, Flyers win that game just mm-hmm. on paper, right? You're you're taking a player. I mean, think of it like in in video game, you know, sense for a second. You're probably putting a, a ninety seven or ninety eight overall player yeah. back in your lineup. That simulation is going to run its way in your favor almost every time. But the human element and realizing that it's a deflating feeling that your organization decided that despite the fact that you were on the cusp of winning, they didn't think you could do it. Yeah. And they wanted to put this guy back in and it messed up the chemistry. And then, yes, you're right. Game seven. Well, that was that. Yeah. Um, I thought that was interesting. And probably the most vulnerable moment that we saw uh, that we saw and that people heard was that 10, 15 second gap of, of collecting himself where Keith Primo finally talks about the fact that Jim McCrossin, he, I don't think he said it exactly. I, I do think you could say Jim McCrossin might've saved Keith Primo's life because. Well, I think that's why he gets as emotional as he does. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I really do because it, it, you know, what would have happened? What would have happened if he came back and got another concussion? Yep. You don't know. Right. As bad as they were. And think about what the, the expression is. And you actually just used it a little bit ago uh, with Lindros about getting your not your, your lights knocked out. Yeah. Right. Turn the lights off. Well, if you have enough of a, an extensive history of concussions, it's possible. It stands to reason. One more big hit. Those lights go out for good. Mm -hmm. And, the fact that, you know, we, we talk about this, it's not just a hockey thing. It's a, it's a pro sports thing it happens in college sports, I'm sure as well. But the idea of the, the trainer, the, the coaching staff kind of saying, yeah, you're fine. Go back out. You know, you, you hear all the time about, uh, think about Tyrod Taylor in the NFL a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah. Uh, had a fractured rib. They went to, to go, I think it was cortisone, something. They were trying to, to numb it. Right. And the, uh, the trainer accidentally punctures his lung. Well, how do you get your lung punched in the first place? You're trying to get rid of the pain. You're trying to do something medically to get rid of the, the pain to get your player out on the, on the field, in this case on the ice. And here's a guy who could have just as easily said, no, Keith, you're okay. You're okay to go back out because they thought that might be what's best for the team. And he didn't. And you hear, again, the human element of one person deciding we have to, like, enough's enough. You've done enough. It's time. It's time to walk away. That's a powerful moment. And I bet you that there are other players over the years who wish that they would have had somebody like Jim McCross and do the same thing. Well, and that's what the most interesting thing that I thought that Keith said after I followed up with him and, and, and he said, listen, there are other teams that may not have done that. Yeah. He said, he said, there are other teams that may not have believed in that same, th- same thing. And that's why, you know, if you, anybody wonders, you know, you always talk about when, when teams in any sport have um, a series of injuries and like, well, let's look at the training staff. You know, well, what's the training staff doing? Well, Jim McCrossin has been a Flyers trainer or, or um, head of their training department or whatever his official title is now 
for a very long time, for a very long time. Um, there's a reason for that. Okay. And, and, and it's because he's willing to put the human element, willing, willing to put the player and his life first. Yep. Yeah. I mean, look, if there's an, if there's an injury that's not, that just hurts, but if you're not at risk to injure it anymore, yeah, let's freeze it up, give you some meds and get out there and play. Right. You know, you, you got a, you know, you, you got a bad, you know, bad bone bruise or something. And it hurts what, like hell. You it know? was, uh, wasn't it Poulin? Was it Poulin that we yeah, had? Yeah, well, it was ribs. His was the ribs. Yeah, his was the ribs where he had yeah. the, the spiral fracture. And, and yeah. he said about freezing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, something like that, that's different, right? Yeah. That's a, that's a matter of pain tolerance for, for something that will heal on its own. But for something like this, you just can't, you know? And I, I remember talking to McCrossin with uh, when Ian LaPerriere blocked a shot with his face and the, the meds that he was giving him were related to the brain. Mm-hmm. like brain functionality like that was the medication that he was taking at the time and it's like and you're sitting there saying and this guy's thinking about potentially coming back and playing this sport again after this happened you know you know pronger probably the same thing a little bit there and these guys and mccrossin's had to tell these guys no he's had to tell them eventually you can't do it you can't do it and it's a shame because we would have all loved to seen keith primo keep playing hockey we would have all loved to see chris pronger what could have happened what could have been with yeah. that team at the start of the, of the 2010s with Pronger. Um, we would have loved to see Lappy come by, back and play a second year, right? He was a beloved player for one season. But McCrossin is the guy who's, who's had to deliver that message to them, and I'm sure several others as well that we don't even know about. And, and it's the Flyers are lucky to have a guy like Jim McCrossin. Well, and I, and, and, and that's, that's, that's all there is to it. Well, wasn't McCrossin the one who had to break the news to, to Oscar? Wasn't he yeah. the one that was in the room? Yeah. Yeah. And you th- and you th- yeah you're right. I mean you're talking about a guy who's, uh, he's seen some stuff. Yes, he has. He's he's seen some stuff, yes, and he uh, he's had to have some really rough conversations with some really great players about some potentially life changing uh, uh, medical moments. Mm-hmm. And I haven't heard anybody say anything negative about the guy. No. No, now great. you're you're obviously better uh, better equipped to talk about over the last however many years uh, about the way that people will ultimately things will leak out about somebody after the team moves on or even when somebody's still employed by the organization. If people there, there's usually two sides with with Jim McCrossin, there there has only ever been at least in my temper you know my short time around the team there's only ever one one side and it's it's been positive. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, we went I, through we went through a period. I mean, you know, I can take you back where, you know, guys were out of the lineup with, with uh, you know, whether it was we weren't sure if it was a concussion. They were never yeah. they never liked to use the word concussion. It was oh, he's you know he's just not feeling well or you know is uh, whatever. I mean, and there were all kinds of things. There used to be a time, Russ, and it wasn't that long ago, but there used to be a time when McCrossin would would be brought out to talk to the media about injuries we were we had access to him to, to talk about the injuries and we just you know that that's changed in the last you know five to seven years and you know everything's upper body lower body or now you know the bubble unfit the play <laughs> and, yep. and and that's it and so we don't have access to him anymore but he used to be very specific too 
and tell us about like different parts of the body that we had no idea using the, the actual medical name for parts of your body. You know, like I can still remember learning about the rectus abdominis from, <laughs> from Jim McCross and like, like things you don't ever think you would be writing about. Right. Yeah. But he was very good in that regard. So yeah, no, no negatives about Jimmy and he's a Delco guy. Oh, thank God for that. There you go. All right. So let's get to the team now, the current team. We talked about Nolan Patrick and I, I think it was two weeks ago, you know, we had talked about, um, I think you had brought up the hypothetical of given the way that things went down around the team, especially when the NHL resumed play, when camp started back up, Nolan Patrick was, for the most part, was out west. He was back home. And you brought up, you know, potentially, could he be a change of scenery guy? Is he a guy that, as a restricted free agent, might not necessarily uh, garner a contract? Could it be that the team could look to move him as part of a deal and, and have another team sign him to a deal? And restricted free agency was brought up uh, on a call with Chuck Fletcher. But I wonder who brought I, that up. <laughs> yours truly. So it was interesting because I think the way I think that initially Chuck had kind of worded it in a way that made it sound like you you know you have to do your due diligence with your RFAs. But if we're being honest, the number of offer sheets that have been signed over the years it's been four since what two thousand ten I think, and it's been like nine seven since 2000 it's not really a thing we saw it last year when a lot of great players like Braden Point he would have looked good in orange and black or at least with a poison pill contract that could have uh, further damaged the Tampa Bay Lightning that's fine um one of the targets you know we we've talked about how Winnipeg has had players uh that have been rumored around the Flyers before uh I think even going back to last year um it was Nick, Nick Ehlers. It was, it was Nick Ehlers that he might be a guy that the team could have looked to to make a swap of sorts for Shane Gostisbehere. Except the rumors around Patrick Line all of a sudden got a little bit. It wasn't smoke where there's smoke, there's fire. It became there's actually a little bit of fire, and and it's starting to burn a little bit brighter. And it's not just like some conspiracy theory. It wasn't us just throwing nonsense out there, which we don't usually tend to do anyway, but it started picking up traction. Our friend over on Twitter at NHL rumors daily, who we love NRD. Great guy. I've met him. Nice guy. He's down on a flyers game covering, uh, covering the game. He started bringing up that there's interest. And obviously any team is going to be interested in a 21 year old kid who's played 305 NHL games, who has 138 goals, who has managed to pot at least 30 goals in every season, with the exception of this year where he had 28 in 68 games, stands to reason he would have gotten to that 30-goal mark uh, if he had the opportunity to play the remaining 14 games. So a team that needs scoring and a team that could certainly use a winger that could really put the biscuit in the basket would be nice. And all of a sudden, it sounds like yeah, there's a possibility here. There's actual traction. And perhaps the Flyers and the Jets have engaged in conversations. What do you know, Anthony? What do you know? Well, here's what I can tell you. Um, I do know with 100% certainty that there was uh, at least an initial you know, check-in conversation between the two sides. Um, and the Jets are willing to talk line A um, with – 
multiple teams, not just the Flyers. Um, but they, you know, they are going to look to get uh, a, a good return. So line A situation is, I mean, you know, you mentioned that he's young, you know, he's 22, 23. He's 21. Um, he, well, I think he turns 22. Or this, or, no, you're right. He's 22. Sorry. He's 22. Okay. Okay. Turned 22 um, in April. Yeah. So, okay. So he's going to, he's 22. Um, he's got one year left on his original contract, which is a $6.7 million cap hit. And then he becomes an RFA. Um, and if they move him, they want to get they want to get something to help on defense because they're really thin on defense. Um, uh, and but they want more than that. So you know, if you were talking Gostas Bear, for example, you know you can exchange a little bit of salary there and make it work uh, with those two. But the Jets are going to want something else. And this is what I did not know. Like I, I had known, you know, from people I talked to with the Flyers, I had, you know, gleaned that they were talking to Winnipeg and, you know, expressed an interest, uh, see where, see if they could start anything there. But I didn't hear anything about what Winnipeg wanted back. And so that's where our buddy uh, NHL Rumors Daily uh, comes in, and you know he has said that. Uh, what he's hearing out of Winnipeg. And believe me, when I say, you know, we don't talk about rumor mongers mm-hmm. much, right? I mean, it, I, I know he's kind of an, an anonymous Twitter handle, okay? But the guy, the guy is connected. All right? And so let, let's just, you know, we're not just talking to this guy because he's, you know, he's just some rumor monger. We're talking to a guy who has contacts with 31 teams, soon to be 32 teams in the NHL. Um, and get some really good information. Um, and he puts out there that says Winnipeg would, would only really begin to engage this conversation with the Flyers if either Joel Farabee or Morgan Frost were also included in the deal. So the question is, would you trade Gostas Bear and one of those guys for Patrick Laine? Yeah, I think he'd be stupid not to. I, I think that there are a couple of qualifiers here. One, I have to imagine there's draft compensation. I can't imagine that, that you're getting a, a two-for-one swap because unless Line a has done something to sour the organization on him so much that they just want him gone, which, I mean, I, I have listened to a couple of podcasts based out in that area that have given me the feeling that, okay, maybe, maybe there's a little bit there. Shane Gossespierre at this point doesn't have negative value on your team, but like I think everybody in the league knows that you're very open to moving on from him. I think signing Robert Haig to a very reasonable contract pretty much solidifies the fact that like Shane Gossespierre is really not necessarily a, a, a necessity for your team. He might be more of a luxury. So then it comes down to Farabee and Frost, and, and who do you think is the higher upside guy? Do you go with Joel Farabee, who has demonstrated at different points – throughout his NHL career, which has been short, but has been impactful, that he can score. And if he is surrounded by solid players, that he can score and he can, he can be a contributor to your team. Or do you try to protect Morgan Frost, who, you know, there are people that, that we respect. I, I respect the heck out of, uh, out of Bill Meltzer. And, and Bill and I have talked a bunch of times sitting in press row about what Morgan Frost could be. 
if he fills out his frame, is he the closest thing that this organization has had in terms of vision to Claude Giroux? Like, is he the guy who takes over that ultimate playmaker mantle? There is a case to be made that you could look back on this and say, ma'am, we let the better of the two players go because Morgan Frost is a higher upside guy. But it depends on what you think he is. If you don't think Morgan Frost projects to be a center, and there have been people who have brought up the idea that maybe he does have to switch to the wing to break through at the NHL level. Well, then I think at that point you go with the 21-year-old who you've already seen has the ability to score at this level. And, and you try to hang on to Farabee. If you think that Morgan Frost can develop into your 1C or your 2C within the next, like, two to three years, for maybe 2C and then maybe, like, four years to your 1C, then maybe you try to protect Frost. Where do you land? I listened to Chuck talking about Morgan Frost and one of the – I don't remember if it was the last presser, the press availability or the one before that. And, and it just seemed like – the way he was talking about him, it made it seem like he was still a little further away than, than they wanted him to be. So with that being said, I think that he would be a more likely candidate to go in a trade like this where we're talking hockey trade. I mean, this was the question that I asked him about. Um, if they weren't going to be players in free agency, might we see more hockey trades? And this certainly would qualify as one where you're player for player or players for players um, and, you know, helping fill weaknesses on both teams. Uh, I, I would be okay with that. I would, I would make that trade. I would go Frost and, and Gostas Bear for line A only because there's no, there's no place for Shane Gostas Bear on this roster. You're going to have to lose salary to bring in line A. Gostas Bear is the easiest salary to move. Um, that's close to, to line A's number. Um, and if you have to give up a, a prospect, I'd rather give up Morgan Frost than Joel Farabee. I think Farabee is, I mean, he's obviously NHL ready. He was playing in the NHL playoffs this year and Morgan Frost was nowhere to be seen. Um, so I, I, I like Farabee as a long-term player, a little bit, just a little bit more than Frost. I think Frost is going to be very good, but he still needs time. So I think that that, that would work for me. I don't know if I would do it. If Farabee was the player, I'd have to think about it probably a little bit more. But yeah, I, I would I would do it if it was Morgan Frost. And I want I'd want to be clear. This is a this is still kind of a hypothetical. Uh, we know that there's been conversation. We don't know what is being talked about. We're only going off of information we got um, from NRD. And um, yeah, I mean if that's if if that's the case, I would I, mean, I would do that. I, but I'm thinking the Flyers are being a little bit cautious. I think the thing that makes it palatable is that he's 22. That line is yeah. 22. You're not trying to trade for a 26 or 27-year-old player. Right. And, and if it turns out that Morgan Frost grows into an, a, you know, an incredible player, you hope that line is able to continue to, to touch that 30-plus goal potential. Right? He's already shot. If Listen, the easiest way to look at this is if this guy has managed at – you know, it, it was what his age 19 season, 19 turning 20. He put in 44 goals at that age. Imagine him on this team. Imagine him surrounded with the talent that exists on this team and in Elaine Vigneault's system. It, it, 
it is not inconceivable that he could crack beyond 40 goals if he were on this team. It's not, that's not some pipe dream. That's not fantasy booking this. That's a legitimate possibility. Uh, before we go, because we're up against it here, um, we had a five-star review. I know there was another thing that you wanted we, to talk about. I think, but we had, I think we had three five-star reviews. One of them was the least C five-star review, which we'll have to get to at some point. I see two. And one I believe is an updated uh, one from Van Horn S57. Okay. Uh, and that one is, uh, remember, fans since uh, Jeremy oh, yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. Dagger, who yeah, says, yeah, yeah. Th- okay. thanks so much for the September 15 drop. Real uh, Flyers and NHL fans crave your entertaining and informative podcasts all year round. Our Flyers interest doesn't end when the know-nothing media retreats. Dang. Thank you. Thank you, Van Horn. Uh, And then this is a new one from Matt from Harleysville, who says, five stars, love this podcast. Love the podcast. Hard to get good Flyers information, and you guys do a great job. And is the man. And Russ is okay, too. Seriously, though, keep up the great work and look forward to more podcasts to come. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate that. Matt, we were so motivated <laughs> when you dropped that in here on the 17th that we went out and got Keith Primo. We did that just for you. Yeah. Okay. Um, so listen, do what everybody's doing. Do what all the kids, uh, all the cool kids do. Go over to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review. Uh, five-star ratings are great and we appreciate them tremendously, but a five-star you know, review is what really does it for Anthony. That's the thing that makes the man smile. Okay. And we're going into a potential three-month-plus hibernation from hockey, right? Not our podcast. We'll be here every week. But it might be until the end of December or beginning of January, as our friend NRD once pointed out, uh, I don't know, a month and a half ago. Um, we're going to continue to put out quality content. We'll have uh, some draft stuff that we'll, that we'll be working on as well. I know that there was a storyline that, that came up that you asked Chuck about that we want to get into. I think that there's, that could be part of a, a bigger conversation about the draft. And, and I think there are going to be some availabilities between now and next week and, and we'll get into it then, but there's a lot of stuff to look forward to for this team. And, you know, it's going to be a weird kind of sort of off season when we're typically used to hockey going. And I have to say, before we go, I think the one thing that we have to commend uh, the NHL on and the NHLPA and arena workers and medical workers, transportation staff, food staff, is when the NHL proposed the RTP, the return to play protocols, uh, and they proposed this two-city hub city model to bring back hockey, it was met with plenty of skepticism, who said it couldn't be done, who said that the only kind of bubble that could work is the one in Orlando where the NBA and MLS were, were doing their tournaments. And I think the NHL and the NHLPA have done something that was truly remarkable they got through it without any positive COVID tests. It's pretty incredible stuff. It wasn't perfect. If you talk to some of the players, it was not perfect, especially those who were in Edmonton. It wasn't perfect. But I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the sacrifice that, that those people made and, and all the people who helped to make it a, a reality. Yeah, it was great. And uh, don't be surprised. Now we got to wrap this up. But don't be surprised if the bubbles return to start the 2020-21 season. But we'll talk about that on the next episode. So we'll be back next week. As we mentioned off the top of the show, you can follow us on Twitter at SnowTheGoalie, Facebook.com slash SnowTheGoalie, Instagram at SnowTheGoalie. You can follow Anthony and I on Twitter and on Instagram at AntSanPhilly, at JoyOnBroad. Open up the description of this episode. You can find it. It's all linked there. Just click on it. It's beautiful. It'll redirect you wherever you want to go. So 
follow us there. We might even do like a mailbag, like a live mailbag. We'll do the live stream. We'll do the video and all that Jim Jam stuff. It's all great. It's fantastic. Anyway, for Anthony, I'm Russ. Thanks for checking in. Make sure you subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Play Music, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast. People's play- Podcast, Players Podcast, Prognosticators Podcast, PDLA Podcast, Papers Podcast, the Primo Cast. Talk to you next week.